welcome to The Straw Hat with Rabbi David Wolkenfeld and Rabbinate Goldie Guy. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. So we are recording on Monday, November 23rd, which is an auspicious day in the Jewish calendar. It's the first day that Dafyomi moved on to Pesachim, Masech Pesachim, after 105 days in Erevin. And uh, this was a moment that was uh, celebrated by those who learned Dafyomi and those who are friends with those who learned Dafyomi and want to support people in that Dafyomi learning cycle. Uh, and our shul got some prominence in, in some of these celebrations. You're going to share. You were you were following more than I was. Yeah, I uh, yesterday I got the chance to be at the Hadron Siam. Hadron is a movement that was started um, by Rabbanit Michelle Farber in Israel uh, to encourage women to take part in the Daf Yomi, and she uh, is one of the only women who are regular sheer givers, daily sheer givers for the Daf Yomi cycle. Uh, she and another daily uh, magichir, uh, Rabbanit Dasi Frochter, were both on the call and spoke about teaching Dafyomi uh, and doing the siyum. And uh, one of the featured speakers, one of the people who, who gave Dvar Torah at this Hadron siyum, was our very own Anne Levinson, who spoke about her experience as being an active leader on the Eruv team, maintaining our Eruv every single week, making sure that our community can carry on Shabbat. So in addition to having learned the entire uh, tractate Eruvin, Anne is also a practical, I'd say, expert on the ground, uh, having maintained and, and worked on our Eruv for so long. So, uh, and this was a, a really, really exciting event. Anne spoke about our community and showed pictures of our community Eruv in front of 600 people around the world um, who were celebrating the Siam of Masachet Eruvin as she spoke beautifully. It was really, really cool. It was really exciting. I was not, I was not like I didn't join the Zoom event for the entire celebration, but I, I you know people texted me, so I like signed on to listen to Anne speak and, and watch her show pictures. It's like her slideshow of our uh, highlights of our, our neighborhood era. It was really really special and and, yeah. and really I was very proud that she spoke in such a great way about our this piece of communal infrastructure and about our community uh, before so many people. So that that was really um, really fun. Uh, I'll just say, if you're listening and you want to join the Aruv team, we are always, always looking for new volunteers. It's uh, a really wonderful way to uh, serve the community. Uh, we, you need to be available during daylight times, Thursday or Friday, if you have availability Thursday morning before work or in the summer, Thursday afternoon after work or Friday morning if necessary, uh, and uh, you have a bike or a car and can... Uh, or a lot of time, you want to do it on your, on feet, on your feet, but uh, bike or car is best and you could... Uh, you know, happy to, you know, train you and, and teach you what to look for. And uh, it's a great um, way to serve the community and get, get outdoors and, and le- learn about the neighborhood in a, in a very, very detailed, detailed way. So um, it's, a, it's a great reminder uh, of that. Uh, I, I um, sort of was thinking about, about you know, Masechet Erev in these last 105 days that sort of corresponded to these, uh, this, you know, strange, you know, 105 days in the this ongoing strange COVID time. And Ayurvin is about this this merger of domains, right? How uh, public space can become private space and private space can interact with other private spaces in semi-public ways and, and all of these uh, dynamics that we've had to kind of negotiate in these, these past uh, months as we've tried to make 
public spaces a little bit more like private spaces uh, in terms of their safety and make our private spaces a little bit more like public spaces in being able to interact with other people. It's very much uh, on the nose on these uh, these Erevin themes. So I, I my my tefillah for for Psachim is that this 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 tractate in the Dafyomi cycle will take us right up until Pesach, and uh, which of course is the original. Um, Salvation from plague, a holiday, right? So uh, that's, that's our uh, please God that we'll, we'll we'll begin to feel some of that that redemption in the coming coming days as we learn Masechet Zachim. And there's a new person in the community who I understand is learning Daf Yomi. <laughs> I guess this is a public uh, commitment then. Uh, I think yeah, so, yeah. I, I'm 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 hopping on board for Masechet Zachim. So if you want to join me or ever talk about Masechet Zachim as we learn through, I'm here. And maybe I'll even uh, take some time and we'll do some highlights from Dafyomi. Uh, I'll, I'll teach a little bit as we go. Awesome, awesome. I, the, the fun thing about it really is is that uh, it just it invites so many Torah conversations with, you know, because, you know, I, I guess after a while, maybe, I don't know. It's, you can also always say, what do you think about this week's Parsha, right? I mean, hopefully you can start a conversation with any Jewish person by just talking about the Parsha. But Dafyomi expands exponentially the number of conversations you can have with people by giving other topics that um, there are members of the community, members of the Jewish community all over the world who can uh, join those conversations. So today, Monday the 23rd, is the first day uh, the Dafyomi cycle is, is, is learning Masech HaPsachim. Uh, and uh, we'll be doing it for a couple of months, so join in any time. Uh, it's a great... Yeah. And uh, mazel tov to everyone who finished Erevin. Again, big, big accomplishment. Shkoich. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So so tell us about your upcoming teaching, uh, speaking about Talmud learning. <laughs> okay, you're ah. still in the middle of this uh, Talmudic Stories uh, series of classes. Yeah. How's that been going, and, and what, what what's next? It's been going really nicely. I uh, We've been... Uh, talking about the theme of dealing with uncertainty in the world, I think a, a fitting, uh, a, it's a funny theme always, but I think in this time of uh, COVID, uh, definitely so, as we don't, you know, we don't know how or when uh, we'll be, we'll have that salvation like you were talking about. So dealing with uncertainty, how does the Gemara, how does, how do the, how do the rabbis theologically deal with uncertainty? How do they deal with uncertainty in halacha? Uh, the last class that we did had to do with um, when uh, Rabbi Meir is uh, dealing with the uncertainty of his teacher leaving the path of rabbinic Judaism and how did Rabbi Meir's Torah emerge? How did he continue learning? How did he deal with the reality of halacha in his world when his teacher no longer saw that as a reality, as an objective truth? Um, so that was a, it was a really, really fun conversation. Uh, we had a good group of people joining, and I hope that people will join us for our next class, um, which we're on hiatus this week for Thanksgiving. But uh, next week, next Wednesday night at 8.15, we'll be talking about um, Rabbi Yossi in the Churva. Uh, Rabbi Yossi, we, there's a story of, of this rabbi walking through the ruins of Jerusalem, right? So uh, seeing a destroyed world or a destroyed reality, again, something that we can definitely connect to, right? The old world has been kind of destroyed in a way right and and finding the power to rebuild finding the power first and foremost to, to pray for salvation to hope and then to rebuild out of those ruins so we'll talk about uh what how his prayer took shape there um what inspired him his interaction with god in that ruin and what we might take to our to our own reality now of dealing with kind of a emerging into a new world out of the ruins is this the um, 
Is this the Gemara where Eliyahu Hanavi comes and chastises him, or is that a different story, a different ruin? It's not where he gets yelled at. Well, they, they do question, they question, like, what, what were you doing inside of the Churva? Like, um, yeah, it's where he hears the, the sound of a dove cooing. Oh, oh, different story. Different story than the one I was thinking of. Okay, cool. Um, okay. I don't know if possible. Maybe it inter- maybe yeah, they couple, are uh, intertextual. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll touch on both of There are several stories of things that happen in ruins. It's sort of interesting. Yes. I, yeah. I think yeah. There, was like a, there was a trend in like Victorian England. They People built ruins in their gardens. They thought it was very um, like melancholy invoking in a way that like they really were into back then. So. Yeah. I, I don't, I forget the name of what it was. There's a, there's a movement. There's a design uh, a style that I think calls on on the aesthetics of destruction. Interesting. Things, it's so interesting. Things like yeah, very different. I think for most of our contemporary <laughs> aesthetics. But anyway, yeah. so so there are stories about ruins in the Talmud. So it's it's this whole genre of, of stories. This looks like a really powerful one. Um, yeah, and like the, theologically, is very very relevant. I think to to the moment. Um, yeah. And just to make it super clear, if people didn't attend the first two classes, yes. are they welcome to join? Will they miss out? Will they? These are standalone uh, classes, so you are more more than welcome to hop in. Uh, if you haven't been to the first two, you will not have lost anything coming to uh, this third no, one. They'll have lost. They'll have lost something, but they won't well, still be able to follow. Yes. Certainly, you have most certainly lost that by not coming to learn with me the first two times. Now come and see what's to be gained. Thank you, uh, Rabbi Walkenfeld, for that. <laughs> Torah's inviting you in. These stories invite you in. That's why I love teaching Agatha, is because it's an entry point for anyone, right? We're, we learned it in translation and with the and with the original, um, and there, it's an entry point for everyone. The themes are universal. The experiences are human. That's why I love it so much. There's a poem which I really resonates with me as a as someone who is involved in adult education where people often miss classes and they say, did I miss anything? Uh, there's a poem by, by, uh, by Tom Wayman, who I guess is a, I don't know anything about him, I guess he's a uh, university professor or something. So the, the poem is called, Did I Miss Anything? And it, and it begins by saying, uh, well, the first two stanzas, I'll, I'll just read the first two stanzas, you can follow up if you want to read the, the rest of the poem. You can find it, you can Google, did I miss anything poem and you'll get the whole poem. But the first two stanzas are um, to the poem, did I miss anything? Nothing. When we realized you weren't here, we sat with our hands folded on our desk in silence for the full two hours. Ouch. Everything. I gave an exam with 40% of the grade for this term and assigned some reading to you today, on which I'm about to hand out a quiz worth 50%. <laughs> so somewhere between those polls, did I miss anything? So I don't know. Right? <laughs> I don't know why that poet has to be so mean. <laughs> you are all invited. Please join me to learn. <laughs> Somebody um, asked you recently about um, making sushi on Shabbat which um, we, we did a little research and consulted with some, uh, so, some rabbis, and, and uh, it was, uh, I don't know, we learned some interesting things. So I thought we would, like, talk about that. So just, can you, like, what's the question? Can you, like, sort of, like, what are the stakes in, in making sushi, okay? And, uh, like, why would somebody ask about making sushi? Um, yeah, so thank you to, to uh, the people who asked. Just a statement of appreciation. Like, I love getting questions, and especially when I not certain about it it invites me to do more learning and i it, it's exciting for me um so the sorry, issues I, that I, arise I, I, sorry, I want to jump in and say i absolutely absolutely also love getting halakha questions <laughs> and it um people are sometimes apologetic when they ask oh i'm so sorry to bother you about like da 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 this happened with my spoon and i put it in the pot with it you know and and I just don't be about like this. Literally, this I trained to do. This I know. Like, yes. You know. Okay. So uh, the major issues that arise with preparing sushi on Shabbat 
are uh, two malachot. The two malachot are tochen, grinding, and bone, building. Right, the thirty-nine malachot uh, that are that are creative labors that we're not allowed to perform on Shabbat um, are all things that were involved in the creation of the Mishkan and the building of the of the tabernacle in the desert. Um, and these two malachot, um, one comes from the building of the actual uh, tabernacle, right, of placing planks into their sockets, right. That would be bone building, and tochen has to do with the preparation of the the bread. Uh, uh, in the tabernacle as part of the offerings. Uh, and so grinding uh, was part of that process. So uh, what's the grinding in sushi? There's no grinding in so, sushi. So, okay, great. Right, so these are broad categories. Where's their building in sushi? Where's their grinding in sushi? There isn't, right? You don't grind anything usually in, when you're making sushi. But there's an, uh, um, there's an expansion of this category to include like chopping something up very finely such so they can like kind of imitate grinding, right? Things that are included in the category of grinding are things that are similar to grinding or could be extensions of grinding. So chopping up the vegetables or the elements that you're going to roll into your sushi very finely could be could be considered grinding. So that's the qu- question number one. And then um, number two is bone is kind of constructing something new, right? Where would there be uh, constructing in this process, right? You're, there aren't any wood planks. Um, is combining all of the elements together to create like a form or a design, which so might the, roll, the rolling sushi. of like the, the putting the, the rolling of the, the sushi rice uh-huh. together is could be a question, right? And the the different sources that I that I consulted, certainly different rabbis come out on different uh, on different ends of this question. And uh, the first set of sources that I consulted were were pretty were pretty stringent on this of saying there actually might be some design involved in sushi since sushi is so kind of aesthetically pleasing once you kind of arrange it and it's kind of nice to look at. Uh, so you combined it to look differently and now it's bone. Uh, whereas tochen, right? Tochen itself is not an issue if you're doing it, uh, if you're doing it right up to the mealtime. It's kind of just, you're going to do, you're yeah, going to chop up those vegetables, not, not grind them. You're going to chop them and then eat them as part of the meal. So that seems to be permitted. But the the bone question was more of an issue there. Yeah, what do you have to say? Just just, just going back to the chopping, the grinding and chopping versus you know, there, there are two um, sources of leniency. One is like the size of the pieces. It seems that like that tochen is very fine pieces, and if it's not quite as fine, it wouldn't fall into that category of tochen. And the second grounds for leniency, which you which you mentioned explicitly, but just I want to like it's not just a tochen; it's a leniency that. Is sort of exists in several of these food-related food but not all of them. Is if it's immediately prior to the meal, then it's not this a forbidden activity. Sort of interesting that that uh, you know, we don't see this across the board in the malachot, but in some of the yeah. and not even all of the food ones, but in some of the food ones, uh, it seems we distinguish between like um, like if you're doing it for well, really we're trying to get the distinction between am I making lunch or am I doing. Um, some like commercial activity. Am I doing a task that is uh, that's more like work? So if I'm like chopping cucumbers into little bits and I'm going to put it into the thing and I'm going to make something that I'm going to sell, you know, Sunday morning, right? Like a uh, cucumber salad, that would be forbidden. But if I'm making my lunch, okay, like that's that's fine. Okay, you can chew your food. You can also cut your food to be, you know, with a knife and fork on your plate, and you can make a salad. Like these are fine. As opposed to, I'm doing a lot of an activity, not for my immediate Shabbos lunch that I'm in the process of preparing and eating, but right. for the next day or for the next week, right? That's more like grinding, which is an industrial commercial um, process. So that's not that's not a leniency for every malacha, but it's a leniency for some of the malacha on Shabbat, including token. So, uh, you know, so 
I think in generally sushi, you're not, I don't know, the vegetables in sushi aren't usually, in my, in my experience, cut very, very fine anyway. And if you're cutting it, you know, at 11 a.m. to serve lunch at 11.45, like, you're, you're going to cut it, and then you're going to set the table, and you're going to eat. Uh, that also would be a way to get out of token. The, the bona piece is a little... Um, um, it's sort of strange. Like, building is not... Um, right. It's something you do with, like, generally things that are, uh, like, real estate connected to the ground, not things that mm-hmm. are disconnected from the ground. Um, but the Gemara does talk about making cheese as right. being prohibit because of bona, right? Making cheese, like putting, I guess, the enzyme into the milk and making it curdle, I guess, or harden, I think. I assume that's the, uh, I've never made, I assume that's the piece that you can't do on Shabbat, right? <laughs> uh, and, and so that that is a, a precedent for um, something done to food that counts as, um, uh, as, as bona and, uh, the question, I guess, that the postgame are grappling with is how how much broader beyond cheese making. Like cheese making is in the Talmud, so we know that's forbidden because of bona. But are there other things that are similar, right? Like rolling up my sushi into a into a log and then roll and then slicing it, like, and then is that like cheese making? Is it similar enough? I'm making right. something, or is it more like you know everyone agrees you're allowed to make a sandwich on Shabbat? Like, is this more like sandwich making, or is this more like cheese making? Okay, like right. what 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 does this uh, fall into? I think that's where you'd see the the dispute. Um, right, but there there is a halachic authority called the Chaye Adam who extended bonet to making a unique design in fruit, um, and he he included that in the category of kind of building or design. Uh, and many authorities disagreed with him, and extending this to the design that you make kind of in sushi making would be a stretch, but. Uh, that that's where the source of concern comes from. There, there was a there was a, um, a, a there still is actually, but there there's a fish market in in New York City near where I grew up uh, called Citarella. If you any Upper West Side people listening, uh, it still exists. It's like expanded. It used to be like a fish store. Now it's like a gourmet store of all kinds. And in the '80s, there was a man who worked there who would display fish on like a panel of ice in the mm-hmm. window. And each day he would lay out the fish on the ice in this very elaborate design, like these big symmetrical patterns of swirls of fish of different colors. It was like really beautiful, I think. And I think he was, uh, I don't know, I think I once was interviewed by a local TV news station who was like doing a story on this guy and his <laughs> amazing fish designs. That sounds like my first time on TV. Uh, but uh, so that's what I'm thinking of. Like that would be, I don't know, that's like maybe what some of these sources discuss, like laying out fruit in some like elaborate display of, you know, that's like akin to building something. Because you're, it's like a, you know, some design. I think in general, I don't know. I think people are pretty lenient. I've been, I don't know. I think generally at our Shabbos meals, people would. Um, I don't know. Do you know people who don't uh, arrange, like a, like an iswas platter? You want to arrange the, you know, you're not going to arrange the tomatoes really nicely around. That. I don't know. I feel people are pretty lenient about food arrangements, you know. But the sushi is a little different. You're like, you're combining into something new. But but I, I so right. yeah. I think that's part of the issue, but there's more. There's more tzarichin, right? There's a, it's a it's a larger sugya of like binyan ba'ochlim of, you know, creating structures through food and how that applies. So yeah, uh, but we came line, down. So our right, our bottom yes, line. Yes, bottom line. We, to, permitted. To, we we consulted Rev Ramon from from Alon Shvut, who is a very uh, prolific halacha educator and uh, one of the rabbis in Alon. Uh, like, 
of the town of Alonshut. Uh, he says it's fine. It's not concerned with, with the building in, in the food Binyan Ba'ochlin uh, concern and, and thinks the other concerns are surmountable. And also Rabbi Linzer, my Rosh Hashiva, uh, he also thinks it's, you know, so I think he feels my it's teacher as well. it's a, your teacher as well. So our teacher, Rabbi Linzer, and Rabbi Ramon, <laughs> who is, uh, I guess, also my teacher, though I didn't study with him quite. I did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, at uh, yeah, Migdalos. In Migdalos. Very nice. Okay. Both so I've met him a few times. I've met him a few times. I've been to Shiro that he's taught. And I've read uh, books of his and essays of his, articles of his. But uh, okay, you're a teacher, everyone. Okay. So he's, he's, also, he's also lenient. So, uh, oh, he has uh, phenomenal charts for this, right? So like I, a lot of the Shabbos questions are cooking questions that I get. And I'll say like, listen, it's actually fairly clear once you learn the system. And people will say to me, no, well, you studied for a long time, so you get it. It's like, well, no, if you got a translation of Rabbi Moan's charts... You'd pretty much be able to follow it too. <laughs> there that's are like, rules yeah, that, that, to the halachic <laughs> system, isn't that crazy? It's yeah. pretty clear. <laughs> and you can graphically represent them in charts. That's like his big. Yes. That's like his, his, his. I mean, he's a brilliant Torah scholar, but his and like real, brilliant. you know, uh, <laughs> like claim to fame is he puts everything in charts, and he has a whole institute now of halacha education, uh, which is publishing a ton of material um, of like many, many numerous halachic topics, but like all with his like very clear distillation of. Yes. Old sources and new sources, uh, like you know, so we, the relevant Talmudic passages, you know, with you know contemporary poskim, uh, and all graphically mm-hmm. displayed in a really neat way. Yeah, check it out. <laughs> what, what I, I I was um, one of the editors of the English translation of his book on Shemitah, so I, at least that one of his like longer books, I like read very very detailed as a editor. That's awesome. So <laughs> that's my, that was my first byline, I think, my first published you know, publication. Oh, that's um, really awesome. So we're recording this Thanksgiving week, and it's sort of interesting to see all sorts of articles in the press and things on the radio and just like a lot of like drama about Americans about to go into their holiday season under COVID restrictions and how can it be Thanksgiving if you can't have grandma's turkey and how, you know, how could we not, you know, join together with 20 people at the table and... Uh, it's really sort of striking to see that because, um, like, we, we just did that, right? <laughs> we, we, we've had all our holidays. Um, I guess, you know, Hanukkah is mostly a holiday celebrated at home anyway, so I think it's, you know, and, and uh, I guess Purim, we sort of snuck in under the wire before we went into lockdown. But uh, we've basically done our, all of our holidays under this, um, under health restrictions. But for most of our neighbors, this is like the first real um, holiday they're going to miss or experience in really different ways. I always actually find the like Thanksgiving craze a little bit humorous from a Jewish perspective because, <laughs> uh, right, the, you know, like... Because we do like, Thanksgiving every week. Yeah, or twice a week, <laughs> so for some of us, right? So it's, uh, you know, but, but you know, I, I, saw, I saw today data on the percentage of Americans who um, like have hosted a sit-down three-course meal or something like that, or the percentage of Americans who have been hosted for a, a formal sit-down dinner or whatever. And and used to be, like, that was a common thing that Americans did. Like, and, and now it's a minority of Americans who do that, actually, you know, throughout the year. And for many, um, for many of our neighbors and fellow citizens, Thanksgiving and Christmas might be the only time of the year that they sit down to a formal three-course meal with people who are not members of their own household, which is really a staggering thing. And I... I Probably not a healthy way to live, but um, that is how most of them live, and we do this all the time. So it's always kind of humorous, and you sort of roll your eyes at the radio stations with like call in, you know, like advice on how do I, you know, host a meal, or whatever. But um, this year, there's like a tragic element, of course, because it's people are are missing their holidays, and we, I, I think, um, 
We've done that already, uh, but we've, we, haven't, we haven't just, we didn't cancel our holidays, God forbid. We, we just reinvented them and we um, refocused them. Sarah and I wrote an essay that uh, uh, we're sort of sharing informally of like kind of advice to non-Jewish neighbors uh, uh, as they approach their holiday season from, you know, from Jews who've done it already. And I think we've learned a lot about, um, about prioritization, about reimagination, about um, finding moments of joy, uh, e- even in... Uh, these you know, hard times and difficult times, and even when we can't do all the things we'd love to do and are used to doing uh, on our holidays. So, uh, you know, I, I, you know, ho- hopefully people can can, you know, turn to their Jewish neighbors and ask ask us for advice on how to, you know, how to get through this this time. What's a tip that you shared? So, so one piece of advice that I think we learned from, especially Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, is the. Um, the need to distinguish what's essential and what's a little bit less essential about holiday observance. We, you know, normally, as you may remember, if you think back in time, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we're in shul for hours and hours in a packed room with lots of singing, all things that were impossible this year. We had to shorten our services in order to accommodate as many people as we could in multiple services that took place one after the next. Uh, We had to shorten services just because exposure would be limited that way and it'd be safer that way. Um, And and so we took out a lot of things that we we could so that we could focus on the things that we really didn't want to give up. And there was a lot of um, like anxiety about taking out um, elements of the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur liturgy. And I, I think in two directions, one, anxiety was, I'll miss it too much, right? And and that's one. And the other set of anxiety is, what if I don't miss it? And then I don't want to go back to it, right? You know, like maybe I think there were, I definitely, certainly rabbis who expressed, you know, that that, that anxiety. If we, once once people know that you can do all of Yom Kippur, you know, tefillah in two and a half hours, like how will they go back to a normal six hour Yom Kippur again? Like once, once they know, uh, the cat's out of the bag. And uh, both of those anxieties, I, I just, um, you know, I, I think uh, in some ways, I, I think just transcend that anxiety and, and just make make your holiday what you can make it uh, during this year. And uh, like circumstances are really extreme right now. And next year, maybe you'll you can still go back to things that you took out this year, just taking it out this year, uh, like the big turkey, you know, with 10 people, 15 people at your table. If you give it up this year, like that's OK. You can go back to it next year. Uh, and things that you give up this year that you decide, actually, I'm happier this way and it works better for me this way. Uh, yeah, so you can rethink things for next year. Maybe you'll discover something. And, and in, in that process of distinguishing between what's essential and what is a little bit less essential. That's one of I don't know. It's one of the tips that Sarah and I put in her essay. There are a few others, and you can you can all read it if you want. But uh, uh, I think all of us like we've all we've all done it. We all have wisdom to share. I think each one of you like if you could probably you know if if pressed could come up with an essay, could come up with five or ten pieces of concrete advice to offer to your neighbors. And I, I think you know we should find ways of like sharing that wisdom with friends or or, or, or even for ourselves, right? Because you know just because we. Um, did it for Sukkot doesn't mean we aren't also then feeling that same stress coming into Thanksgiving, right? It's uh, we, we know to prioritize health and safety. We know to follow medical guidelines. And we know that you can't just pretend it's not a holiday, right? That, that these days have power and, and that should be acknowledged. And, and uh, But, you know, fi- find new ways to experience joy and, and do what has to be done. Yeah, I think that uh, that what you just said of kind of recognizing what you can do now, like, uh, what are the new things that I've learned? What are the points of joy that are actually present even in this difficult situation? Uh, is connected to a, a, a teaching on thankfulness that we can learn from this week's Parsha. 
Um, we find in this week's Parsha uh, the naming of Yehuda, where Leah, his mother, when he, she's naming him, uh, states the reason for his name is Hapam Odeet Hashem, right? After she's given birth to Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi, her first three children, she gives birth to Yehuda and she says, This time I'll be thankful to God or I'll thank God. Um, and the Gemara sees Leah in this moment of gratitude as the first person to really offer thanks to God, which is a really kind of striking observation or, or classification, right? Why is this moment of hoda'a, of thanks, um, the first genuine moment of giving thanks? What is it about that, the thanks that she has or that experience of giving birth to Yehuda, to her fourth child? Um, so hoda'a, I think, contains in it, and, and the root hoda'a, lehodot, means to thank, but it also means to, to recognize, um, to appreciate, uh, to see what is in the moment. And I think that's what's happening to Leah right then and there. She's saying, okay, I've had three children. I've kind of had my minimum of, of kids, or I've reached, I've reached my quota of children, right? If there are four imahot and 12 shvatim, 12 tribes, so 12 divided by four is, is three. Right, so I had my three, and this fourth one, right, there's something extra here, maybe something I didn't deserve or something I didn't know was coming to me, and I can say, okay, I'm really, really grateful for this blessing, right? It's a moment that she recognizes that she's, that she's really blessed. This wasn't a move on may love. It wasn't something that she knew was going to happen to her, and she stops and offers gratitude, uh, and that's a moment of hoda, of kind of pausing and seeing what's here in this present moment and offering appreciation for that, saying, actually, I owe this to someone or something. It's not only me. I didn't bring myself to this moment. There's something else that I need to, that I'm kind of reliant on here. Some, you know, here, God, right? God gifting her with a, uh, with a fourth child, allowing her to have four of the shvatim. So she stops and she recognizes that and says, okay, this wasn't only me. I should offer thanks. And I think that's a, a kita hoda'ah, like you were saying, right? There's kind of like we should kind of pause and see what's not move on may love here. What are things that, you know, I, I might not have had this blessing and yet it's here and I can pause and appreciate it. That's why I think actually um, when I teach this, I, I often incorporate um, like gratitude practice, like active gratitude practice that we pause and we stop and make a list of three things that we're grateful for, even though that word can feel kind of heavy, right? Gratitude, I'm grateful for. Or something, you can change that to appreciation, right? If you paused right now and said, what are three things that I really appreciate having in my life right now? Um, and they can be simple or they can be bigger. And I think that practice of stopping to recognize it helps us to feel it more, helps us to experience our blessings more from the small to the big, yeah. How often does this episode in the Torah coincide with Thanksgiving week, right? <laughs> I don't know. What are the stats on that? I don't know the stats on that. <laughs> I, I guess I'd have to look back at the classes I've taught, whether I taught about Thanksgiving <laughs> that year or whether I taught about the Parsha. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Rav Huttner in Pachat Yitzchak, he writes about uh, Hoda'ah as being connected to being like Moda. It's like it has yeah. a dual meaning, right? It, it's to be thankful exactly. and also to, like, to admit something, to concede exactly. something. So it's Le about, um, right? Like, uh, is to be grateful is to acknowledge your lack of deserving, right? That it's uh, something you have that wasn't owed to you, that you weren't entitled right. to, mm -hmm. um, and that that admission 
is also the same thing as gratitude, right? It's a, or that they're linked to each other, right? And yeah. I think there's also like a power in in recognizing our dependency on others, right? Especially now as we see like our interconnectedness, the tovu lara for good and for bad to everyone else in the world, right? We can recognize our dependency for the blessings that are in our lives of how did this blessing appear in my life? And if you trace back all the steps, right, it can be, it can be humbling and it can also, you know, you can feel a deep sense of connectedness of, right, if others are doing this for me, I imagine I'm also taking part in this chain for others, right, and giving to others in ways that I don't consciously necessarily recognize and, right, our impact on each other is more felt and, and being thankful for your role in that and for being a recipient of, of other people's kindnesses and generosity and efforts. Um, yeah, so taking those moments to stop and like admit what you owe and and receive and, and feel the gratitude for, for that which you've received. Very nice. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Straw Hat. This is Straw Hat producer Haley Leventhal. As always, let us know if you have any feedback about the podcast or there's things you want to hear in future episodes. Um, we also have a lot of exciting stuff coming up at the Shul. So uh, check out your emails that we send out or our website or the Shul's Facebook page. Um, and we hope you'll join us for um, some of the upcoming events and classes. In the meantime, I hope that you and your families have a very happy and healthy Thanksgiving, even if it's maybe a little more distance than a usual year. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you back here in two weeks.